Nothing you hear in this program constitutes investment advice. It is an expression of opinion only. This is Frisbees, Bulls and Bears. Talking money and markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors and the companies they're investing in. You're listening to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with Dominic Frisbee. Hello and welcome to Frisbee's Bulls and Bears with me, Dominic Frisbee. So I'm sitting in the St Pancras Hotel and I'm sitting with a best-selling author, the author of The Death of Money, Currency Wars and The New Case for Gold. That man is, of course, Jim Rickards. And we are here to discuss his latest book, The Road to Ruin. And if you don't know um, Jim as well as being an author, he's also the editor of the newsletter Strategic intelligence and he's a member of the advisory board for the center for financial economics at john hopkins university as well as an advisor um, on international economics and financial threats to all sorts of people the department of defense and the u.s um, intelligence community um, are amongst the people he advises so jim welcome back to the program great to be talking to you again why don't we kick straight off with the road to ruin this is the third of four books but why specifically did you write this one right uh that's right dominic this is uh the third volume of a projected quartet uh including currency wars the death of money now the road to ruin there'll be a fourth book projected for 2018 we can talk about that when the time comes based on the four horsemen of the apocalypse uh, it's interesting uh almost everyone has heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse but very few people can name them uh they sort of get war and death you know, but then they sort of forget what the rest are, maybe not quite Pestilence? Clear. Well, pestilence is interesting. The Bible does not mention pestilence. Of course, this comes from uh, the book of Revelation, um, chapter 6, and uh, they they specifically mention war, so that's currency wars. Yeah. They specifically mention death, that's the green horse, so that's the death of money. But the third horse, the black horse, uh, the, the, the actual quote from the Bible, I'll paraphrase, it's, uh, and the third seal was opened, and behold, a black horse on the horse a rider and he held a scale in his hand and he said a day's wages for a measure of wheat and a week's wages for a measure of barley but spare the oil and the wine <laughs> and so that's what it says but then so then the question of interpretation arises so a lot of people have said well pest and those those prices are high that's the the first thing historically so is that famine is it famine that one? well people say pestilence they say well the insects came and ate all the crops that's why the price is high then they say famine Famine, because they say, well, there's a famine in the land, a drought or whatever, and so that's why the prices are high. But the, the actual data in the Bible is that the prices are high. That could be pestilence or famine, but I have a new interpretation, which is it could be inflation. <laughs> uh, meaning, you know, there, there's plenty of water and no, no bugs around, but there's inflation. Notice the money has been debased. But I'll leave that to biblical scholars. But I use ruin as sort of a catch-all for pestilence, famine, inflation, monetary debasement, 
I call it ruins. That's where the road to ruin comes from, in part. It has other antecedents, but so that's the third one. We'll, we'll, as I say, we'll deal with the fourth one later. But that's the the origin of it. So, so this. I, book, mean, I wrote a book called Four Horsemen, and we oh. had exactly the same problem deciding what exactly what the four horsemen were. Right. They're, they're uh, sorry, a film, not a book. Yeah. Right. They're, they're red, red, green, black, and white are the colors. Uh, but the the third horseman is difficult because it doesn't actually it has a quotation, but not a name, and so. Uh, you have to sort of uh, interpret the name. So I've used Rowan, but there are other interpretations. So this book specifically, so the first two books, Currency Wars and the Death of Money, warned about instability in the financial system in different ways. A lot of economic history, uh, et cetera, and talking about sort of a coming crisis. But now what I've done is to say, okay, enough warning. Now I'm going to put you in the crisis. We're going to go in the not-too-distant future and imagine what it's like to actually be in the crisis what is the reaction function or the policy response by the global monetary elites? How does that impact you as a saver or an investor? And then work backwards to say, well, what can you do today to not be a victim of that? So, um, for example, in I, I hypothesize that we're actually talking about three crises, 1998, 2008, and 2018, which is an estimate. Do you think it's like a 10-year cycle? It's a 10-year cycle. I've set up this 10-year tempo, but I make the point so about... you'd have 87 the stock market crash. Well, you could go maybe. back there or 94. It's not, a, it's not, it's not an exact 10-year cycle, okay. maybe every five, seven years, every 10 years, etc. Uh, but the point there... Right, and then that. you go back 10 years, I'm guessing you've got, what, the peak of the bond market, maybe? Or? Uh, well, go, go well, 1971, the end of the gold standard, 1977 and 1981, uh, U.S. inflation was yeah. out of control, 50% inflation in five years. The value of the dollar, the, the dollar lost half its value mm-hmm. uh, in between 77 and 81. The mid-80s Latin American debt crisis, the 87 stock market crash, 94, the tequila crisis... If you want to take some of the smaller but still very um, uh, dangerous crises, there were there are others. But the point is, every three, five, seven, ten years, it's been uh, almost ten years. It's been eight years since the last one. Mm-hmm. No one should be surprised if it happens tomorrow. I, we seem to have short memories. We seem to forget history. But history teaches that these things happen on a on a regular basis. It doesn't mean it'll happen tomorrow. It means that no one should be surprised if it does. Sure, but the crises, these things. Even though we kind of, you know, the financial crisis happened in 2008, you know, these things are incremental. So, you know, you could say that the, 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 the seeds of the financial crisis were, I don't know, in Alan Greenspan's reaction to the dot-com crisis and all the loose lending and so on. And it was a gradual thing mm-hmm. until it escalated into mm-hmm. a crisis. Right. I mean, things were going wrong from, I don't know, mid-2007 maybe things were going wrong. Well, I agree with that completely. I, and I make this point in, in the book, The Road to Ruin, that these, certainly these recent crises, 98, 08, and my estimate for the next one, uh, each crisis is larger than the one before. Each is more dangerous. Each bailout gets bigger than the one before. So in 1998, Wall Street bailed out a hedge fund. In 2008, the central banks bailed out Wall Street. In the next crisis, who's going to bail out the central banks? In other words, the next crisis will be beyond the capacity of the central banks to bail it out, just to back that up. So I'll take the Federal Reserve. This is true of all the central bank, all the major central banks around the world. The Federal Reserve took its balance sheet from $800 billion to $4.2 trillion between 2008 and 2015. If they had somehow normalized, got back to around $800 billion, or I'll give them a trillion for a round number, uh, and got interest rates to 2 2.5%, I'd be the first one to say, to congratulate them, say, nice job, guys. You saved the system, and you normalized the balance sheet, and you normalized interest rates. 
that didn't happen. The balance sheet is still at $4 trillion. Interest rates are still close to zero. If the next crisis were to happen tomorrow, which it might, they're at the limit of what they can print. They can't print another $4 trillion. I mean, legally they could, but there would be political opposition. They would be crossing an invisible confidence boundary. They would destroy currents, uh, trust and confidence in, in their own product, which is the money they create. They can't cut interest rates. Very good evidence that negative interest rates don't work. Negative interest rates are not just more of rate cutting. They actually work in very different ways uh, once you're through that looking glass, once you're through that zero bound. So the central banks are unable to combat the next crisis. They'll have to turn to the International Monetary Fund. They have the only clean balance sheet left in the world. The IMF, for example, is levered about three to one. The Federal Reserve is levered 113 to one. Federal Reserve is insolvent periodically. Uh, it looks like the worst hedge fund you ever saw. But the How much I- money does the IMF have? Do we know that? Well, the, the point is they can print money. They can, they can expand the balance sheet, and they will. They, can they? Yes. They have a world money. Uh, they call it the Special Drawing Right, or the SDR for short. I call it world money because that's yeah. what it is. So it's not hard to understand. Just as the Federal Reserve can print dollars, or the European Central Bank can print euros, or the Bank of England can print pounds, the IMF can print SDRs. And the, so an SDR, I know this because I wrote about it a couple of months ago because the, the pound weighting was changed in the SDR, mm-hmm. wasn't it, last That's month, right. two months ago. Um, and it's, it's uh, one SDR is made up of a basket of foreign, foreign currencies. And give or take, it's like 10% yen, 10% pound, 45% dollar and... 12 or 13%. No, it's, a bit, it's about 7% pound, isn't it? Sorry, you're frowning at my, me getting my numbers wrong. No, you're, but, no, you're, you're, you're close, Dominic. They're, they're yeah. about right. Uh, it's, again, I'll use round numbers. It's about uh, 45% dollars, uh, 37% euros, 10% Chinese yuan, and then the sterling and uh, the yen are about 8% each. So that's right. It adds up to about 100%. So, but in, in issuing an SDR... Don't dollars and euros and pounds and yen and yuan all need to be created? No, and that's the point. Um, they, uh, they're sort of on standby, but the, the SDR is not backed by anything. This idea of the basket is a great misnomer. They'll refer to the hard currencies back in the SDR, or the hard currencies in the basket, or the Chinese yuan is now in the basket, but there is no basket. There's no vault of hard currencies piled up at the IMF backing the SDR. It's not backed by anything. It's pure fiat currency Manna from heaven, as it was described uh, by one of the creators, uh, my friend uh, Kenneth Dam, former uh, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. Um, so it is pure fiat money. Now, what is the purpose of the so-called basket? It's actually used in a three-part maths formula to calculate the value of an SDR. If you say, well, what is it? If I were to swap an SDR for a dollar, so there's a dollar out there, I own an SDR, I want to swap it. What's the cross rate? That's what you use this math for. Right now, the, the one SDR is worth about a dollar forty. Uh, so, uh, but that fluctuates. It's a it's a floating cross exchange rate. Mm-hmm. It could be, not that long ago it was as high as a dollar fifty. So, so that's what it's for. But uh, this is pure fiat money. So when we see this next crisis, we're gonna the bailout is gonna we're gonna see the invention of a new the SDR, which is you know a few of us know about it. But the the, the word SDR is going to enter the mainstream in the way that say quantitative easing did. Ten years, Correct. Eight years ago. Right. Everyday people all over the world, when you say QE, they have a sense of money printing. They know what it means. Uh, SDR, it sounds like, you know, strawberry daiquiri on the rocks or something, but it'll be mainstream. People will understand it, at least to some extent. In fact, it's, it's not... Will you be actually able to hold SDRs in your bank account? No. SDRs are not issued to individuals or corporations. They will be issued to 
governments, uh, but the IMF has a secret trading desk. It exists today. It has for a long time. So I'll give you a very simple example. So it's, they have to be issued right now. They could change the rules, but they have to be issued in accordance with your quota or your vote in the IMF. So the United States would actually get quite a few, whether we needed it or not. Hungary would get some. So Hungary would say, well, look, what are we going to do with SDRs? You know, our people have borrowed, taking up mortgages in Swiss francs because that interest rate was lower than the florin. They thought the rate would be fixed. Turns out not to be the case. The florin has devalued. They're now underwater on the mortgages. We need Swiss francs. So Hungary could call the IMF, say, I've got these SDRs. What am I bid? IMS says, hang on, we'll call China. China has a bid for SDRs. They send dollars to Hungary. Hungary sends the SDRs to China. Hungary sells the dollar spot for Swiss francs and pays the Swiss banks. So that's how this is intermediated and can be turned into other usable currencies. But those currencies already exist. Uh, but the SDR comes, comes out of thin air. It's added to global reserves. Not new, by the way. I'm sure you know, Dominic. It was created in 1969. They have been issued at various times uh, as through the 1980s. Now, interestingly, there were no issues between 1980 and 2009, almost a 30-year span. No SDRs were issued. Why? They weren't needed. An SDR is really a liquidity management tool. It's a crisis management tool. We didn't have any acute financial crises during that time period. We had, closest we can was 1998, which I talked about in the book. Now, we had individual bank failures. We had the dot-com stock meltdown in 2000. But the dot-com meltdown, that was a big market setback. A lot of people lost a lot of money. But that was not a systemic crisis of the kind we're discussing. The, nine, the 98 crisis was over almost as soon as it began. It was acute in August, September 1998, but pretty much cleaned up by late October 1998. And then the stock market took off and reached new highs. But they were issued again in 2009 at, at, the, at the depth of the crisis, and they'll be issued again in fact, they'll be the only source of liquidity in the next crisis because the central banks are tapped out. Now, what happened with the last crisis and the reaction to the last crisis, slashing interest rates and quantitative easing? So everybody said, we will see massive inflation. And we did and we didn't. Uh, in fact, we saw deflation in some things and we saw massive asset price inflation. So stock prices went up, bond prices went up, London property went up in, uh, went up, and various, you know, fine art went up in, you know, inflation in certain assets. But most of these assets aren't included in standard government measures of inflation. And what you had going on kind of behind the curtain, as it were, was this huge transfer of wealth from you know, Main Street to Wall Street, from the, not even to the 1%, but to the kind of 0.1%. Correct. And we now have this huge financial inequality. I know people are angry about it in the States. They're certainly angry about it here in the UK. And, you know, people didn't quite understand how it had happened, but they could see it happening. And, you know, that's, I'm sure that's the cause of this kind of, general feeling of political anger and frustration with our leaders and all these various other things that you know we're seeing in politics at the moment is something similar going to happen again are you going to see another kind of transfer of wealth to the uh, you know is, is the man on the street going to pay the bill again yes surreptitiously uh, yes in, in a different way uh, first of all I agree with everything your description was exactly right I agree with all of it uh, a good. I'm not. I don't consider myself an Austrian economist. I, I've studied Austrian economics. I think it has a lot to offer. I use it, but I'm not really an Austrian. I'm more of a complexity theorist. But an Austrian would say that 
uh, asset price inflation is just inflation. It's just a different kind of inflation. You're right. We have not seen it in consumer prices. In fact, we've seen some deflation, but asset prices are inflated. So that's where the inflation is. In other words, the money's printed. It goes somewhere. It can either go into spending and consumption, which will produce consumer price inflation once you bump up against constraints on output and labor, et cetera, or it shows up in asset prices where people just bid up, take the money and uh, low interest rates and borrow and buy stocks, bonds, and real estate. So it's, it's turned out to be the latter in this case. On consumer price inflation, it's interesting because the classic Austrian view, money printing must produce inflation, is not true. It takes two things to produce consumer inflation. Money printing, yes, that's part of it, but also what's called velocity or the turnover money. That money has to be borrowed and spent. Uh, it's like making a ham and cheese sandwich with just the ham. You need the cheese. So money printing is the ham, velocity is the cheese. You need both to have consumer price inflation. We have not had the velocity. People are fearful. You know, this notion of helicopter money, one of the reasons it won't work, uh, the, you know, the, the, the image is we print up money, we push it out of helicopters, people run around, scoop it up off the ground, and go out and spend it. Of course, that's a metaphor. The way it's actually done is by running larger deficits, having government spending, having the Treasury finance the spending with debt, and having the Federal Reserve or any central bank monetize the debt with money printing and then hold the debt to maturity and not sell it. That's how helicopter money actually works. It's combining fiscal policy and monetary policy. But just to go back to the metaphor, you can throw money at people, they don't have to spend it. They're not. They're paying down debt and they're saving it. Debt, you know, debt reduction and savings are two forms of deleveraging. You're cleaning up your balance sheet, but you're not going out and spending it. That's why we never saw the consumer price inflation. In America, they're paying off uh, student loans, car loans, credit card debt, uh, housing equity, or they're just putting in the bank. Now, as to your wealth transfer point, and you're exactly right, so um, estimates are that $400 billion per year has been transferred from working class Americans to wealthy bankers in the form of zero interest rate policy. I once got a call from a lady, 85-year-old lady in Florida, cold called me, uh, very nice. She said, I have $100,000 in the bank. I used to get two or $3,000 a year in interest. That would be a 2 or 3% interest. Today I get nothing and I can't pay for my meds. What should I do? And I know what Ben Bernanke's answer would have been at the time. He would have said, buy stocks. You know, you need to get into the stock market mm -hmm. and chase those returns like everyone else. An 85-year-old retiree with $100,000 to her name has no business in the stock market. She could lose 30% of her wealth overnight or more, and I expect that will happen. But this was how wealth was transferred from the middle class retirees and working people to wealthy bankers and speculators and um, Wall Street investors. Uh, zero interest rates deprive the savers of any return and give cheap leverage to the punters. Yeah, and also the other thing that people forget, it, it, zero interest rate policy isn't just a, uh, an attack on savers, it's an attack on salaries, mm -hmm. on the salary, because people you know, rely on their salaries uh, for their wealth rather than the appreciation and the value of their assets. Right. But you asked whether, they would be, whether everyday people would be disadvantaged again. The next question is the answer is yes, not through zero interest rate policy and the things we've seen the last eight years, but through actual inflation. Now, the next time, we will get the inflation. And the reason is that the governments will spend the money. See, we've had austerity around the world and government budgets have been constrained. So a lot of money printing by central banks, a lot of bailouts, but not as much expansionary fiscal policy uh, because for a lot of reasons, uh, you know, including you know, conservative politicians and austerity and Angela Merkel and, and so forth. 
But under these new policies of, of really helicopter money, and actually this is what Trump advocates, uh, Trump wants to add $1 trillion of infrastructure spending. We're seeing the end of austerity um, all around the world. And so governments, if people don't want to spend money, governments will. That was Keynes' original insight, is that government has to pick up, create demand, uh, create the aggregate demand. Well, if you combine all the money printing that's already taken place with this new money printing by the IMF and mandated government spending, you will get the inflation at the end of the day. But again, the everyday person loses again in a different way because now your money is worth less. Um, there's a big movement here growing for something called people's quantitative easing. I'm sure you know it's, it's basically printing money and spending it on infrastructure. Mm-hmm. People's quantitative easing is uh, is just another name for helicopter money. It's sure. another name for uh, fiscal policy. Trump calls it the infrastructure plan. Uh, it's all the same. It's basically um, government spending money when people want. People are fearful. They feel uh, burned uh, by what happened in 2008. They're risk averse. Uh, they'd rather save than spend. By the way, saving and investing is a much better way to grow an economy than consumption. Because uh, saving has a double payoff. If, if you save, and the savings, assuming the savings are channeled into healthy investments with positive returns, that's the best way to grow an economy because you get um, you get the immediate impact of the investment. So you know you build a open a factory or build a bridge or buy more equipment or create a pipeline, etc. So you get that immediate GDP, but then you get recurring returns in the future because you've created some efficiency or remove some bottleneck that has mm-hmm. future payoffs. So you actually get paid twice for the same investment. That's the way to grow an economy. Education, investment, technology, not consumption and debt. But consumption and debt seem easier, so that's what we've been pursuing. We're just setting ourselves up for another collapse. Now, let's assume that this collapse, we do get another collapse of some kind. I'm not entirely sure that we will, but let's assume that we do. Um, I buy into your narrative that the next, because I've always said, people have said the government, central banks have run out of tools. And my argument has always been they'll find something, we just don't know what it is yet. And this idea of using SDRs, you know, I buy into that narrative. I can see that that's the next tool that nobody's foreseen, with the exception of yourself. Um, how, my question to you is, how. How planned is this? Do they know it's coming? Are they definitely going to use SDRs? Because I kind of thought when the t- crisis of 2008 came, they were making it up as they went along. Well, they in 2008, they were making it up as they went along. And I've had those discussions with central bankers. I've spoken to Ben Bernanke about it. And he used the word experiment. He was quite proud of it. He said, it's better to do something than to do nothing. I disagree with that, by the way. The Hippocratic Oath says, you know, First, we'll do no harm. Often, if you, if you don't know what you're doing, it may well be better to do nothing than to do something. Bernanke disagrees. So, uh, but I've had, I've conversed with central bankers, members of the board of governors. They said to me, "Can't you know privately? We don't know what we're doing. We try something. If it works, we may try more. If it doesn't work, we back away." But it was completely ad hoc, experimental. We are all, all of us are guinea pigs in a central banker's experiment. Not a comfortable place to be in my view but getting back to your question about the SDRs I see it coming yes but the other people who see it coming are the global monetary elites and I talk about this in my book The Road to Ruin starting with Christine Lagarde now the IMF came out with a paper in 2011 it's uh, all these citations are in my books by the way they're, they're heavily 
their endnotes and sources, et cetera, so easy to find, which was a 10-year blueprint for the rise of the SDR as a global reserve currency. That was early days. More recently, of course, uh, July 15, 2016, the IMF came out with a paper creating a distinction between what they call the OSDR and the MSDR. The OSDR is the official SDR, O for official, that's the one they print and distribute. The MSDR is the market SDR, so they want the creation of a private market. And right on cue, after the paper came out a few weeks later, the World Bank, which is the sister organization of the IMF, issued a $2 billion SDR note, uh, mostly underwritten and bought in China. Now, notice I didn't say $2 billion. I said $2 billion SDRs. The note's actually denominated in SDRs, and you could call your broker, probably, maybe not for individuals, but if you're an institution, and, uh, and buy some of these in the secondary market. That's important because if the SDR is going to be the global reserve currency, you need something to invest in. Your reserves are just your savings. Well, what are you going to put your savings in? You need a deep liquid bond market. That's why the dollar dominates. That's why the Chinese yuan is not even close to being a reserve currency. It won't be for decades, if not longer. So they're, they're creating this private SDR bond market so that countries that earn SDRs or get them from the IMF can then go out and buy these bonds, buy them from the World Bank, Asian Development Bank, etc. She'll be seeing more of that in the future. And then finally, on September 30th, close of business September 30th, effectively October 1st, 2016, the Chinese yuan was included in this basket, although misnomer, not really a basket, but included in this five-part formula. So it used to be uh, sterling yen, dollars, and euros. Now it's those four currencies plus the Chinese yuan. The um, Chinese yuan did not meet the IMF's own criteria for inclusion, but they bent the rules and included it anyway for political reasons. Why is that? Because they see this crisis coming, and they're going to have to issue SDRs. For that, they'll need a vote of their executive committee. China has a large voice. They want China to be on board. They want China to acquiesce in this. And China is saying, in effect, why should we vote in favor of the creation of SDRs if we're not part of it? You know, in America in the 60s, we had an expression, you're either on the bus or off the bus. Uh, until September, China was off the bus. Now they're on the bus. So China can be counted upon to approve this SDR issuance now that they are part of the SDR themselves. So yes, they do see it coming. They're taking steps. The 2009 issuance was inter interesting. Uh, it came in August of 2009, 11 months after the acute phase of the crisis, which was really September 2008. That's how long it took them to get through the governance. This is not a central bank. That, uh, they're a de facto central bank, but they can't turn on a dime because they require a consensus among their members. Um, and that's why in, in my book, The Road to Ruin, I talk about ICE-9. Um, ICE-9 is a freeze or lockdown of the financial system because, the, first of all, when the crisis comes... It, it's expected in the sense that elites are aware of the instability of the system and are preparing for what happens when, when the collapse occurs, but they won't actually see it coming. They'll be as surprised as anyone. I was going to say, because the IMF's forecasting record isn't exactly great. Abysmal. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. The IMF and the Fed, and actually all major institutions of this type, have been off uh, in their growth forecast by orders of magnitude eight years in a row. So if, for example, they said, uh, well, the IMF does a global forecast, if they said 4.5% in 
and it came in at 4.3, I would say, nice going, you know, good job, guys. But you know, they say 4.5, and it comes in at you know, 3.1. That, that's, that's light years away in terms of uh, yeah. GDP growth. Same thing in the U.S., same thing in the Fed. They have abysmal forecasting records. Same thing in the records, U.K., yeah. they, Right, in the U.K. They, they have abysmal forecasting records because they use obsolete models. If you have the wrong model, you will get the wrong result every time. This, this should come as no surprise. The, the Federal Reserve has never forecast a recession. The U.S. has had 40-plus recessions since the end of World War II. They have never, never, forecast. never forecast a recession. Is that part of their, their remit, though, is to be, to, to be bullish? Uh, sure. If the, if, the, uh, if the Fed forecast a recession, it would probably be a self-fulfilling prophecy. People would say, well, I'm gonna, not going to build a new factory. I'm not going to hire. I mean, I understand the politics of it, but let's be honest about um, the models they're using and, and their biases and, and, and all that. So, um, so they won't see this crisis coming. But when it hits, they do have this plan. Now, here's my point. If it's a global liquidity crisis, if the central banks will be unable to respond as they did the last time because they're, they're tapped out, they're at the limits of what they can do, and if it will take at least three months, perhaps six months or longer, to issue these SDRs, what are you going to do in that three- to six-month period? They're going to lock down the system. Money market funds will suspend redemptions. Banks will be shut. Exchanges will be shut. Uh, ATMs might be reprogrammed to give you 300 pounds a day for gas and groceries, and they'll say, why do you need more than that for gas and groceries? It'll be like Greece and Cyprus, and for that matter, India today. As we speak, this is going on in India. The banking system is shut down. The ATMs are offline. I mean, the apart from the stupidity of declaring cash uh, illegal in a cash-based society, leave that aside, they came out with a new form of note to replace the old note. It's the wrong size. The paper, the money is the wrong size. It won't fit in the ATMs. They now have to bring it out of India <laughs> and rip the guts, the physical guts, not just digital reprogramming, yeah. but rip the guts out of the ATMs so they can dispense the new money. That's how bad they were at this. And, yeah. of course, it's all part of the I've war. I've been reading a lot about India. Right. It just sounds like an almighty mess. But right. now, if we, if we get what you describe, I mean, you know, global trade is just going to grind to a halt. Well, global, tra- global trade is declining anyway, even before this crisis, before the election of Trump, who wants to tear up trade agreements, before Brexit, uh, which is also negative for trade, before all these things, Dominic, global trade is already contracting. And that's a big deal because that rarely happens. Now, people look at export, uh, you know, uh, trade surplus and deficit. There, there might be, by the way, I don't agree that Brexit is bad for trade. Um, and the lack of trade agreements doesn't necessarily mean you can't trade. But I mean, global trade might be receding a little bit, but it's not like what you're describing is a complete halt almost. Well, uh, you know, not quite a complete halt, but, I, but a collapse. But no, what I'm describing is more dire than what's going on. But, the, but with global trade contracts at all, that's a big deal. It happened in 2008. It happened in the Great Depression. It's rarely happened outside of those extreme events. And it is happening now. We're not talking about surplus and deficit. We're not saying, oh, someone's deficit's going up or someone's surplus is shrinking. We're talking about the absolute level of imports and exports going down in all the major trading partners. That's a very big deal. I think, you know, you know I, I'm a hard money advocate and uh, I think governments, uh, you know, I'm a massive libertarian. I think governments make a mess of most things they touch, as do central banks. In fact, central banks is a huge problem. And, you know, as soon as you look at the numbers of involved and the amount of debt there is, you can't see how the money system is going to survive in its current form. I get all that. But on the other side, 
you know, you see the progress that's going on in technology, the fact that people all over the world are able to communicate with each other, uh, do business with each other, trade with each other. Uh, there's so many wonderful developments and pr progressive things going on. And there is kind of this battle between, you know, politics on one side and technology on the other. But, you know, there's so many things to be bullish about. Well, let me give you another example. At the moment, uh, less than half the world's population has a has a smartphone. Within four or five years, according to the forecasts, um, uh, the, the number of people that has a smartphone will be over six billion uh, in a global population of just over seven billion. Now, suddenly, loads of people are going to have access to the internet for the first time. All that knowledge they're going to, you know, well, how are they going to use it all? All those people they're suddenly going to be speaking with and communicating with for the first time. Suddenly, the unbanked are going to have access to all sorts of financial things that they didn't previously previously had. Now, all that points to a huge global boom. Don't confuse technology with productivity. We are seeing revolutionary technology. Absolutely no question about it. You're absolutely right about all that. Uh, productivity figures are going down. Um, there's some reason to believe we take all this technology and we use it to waste our time. Uh, the information explosion is enormous. How much of that is fake news it remains to be seen. <laughs> so the point is we're probably... All of it. Uh, well, uh, I might agree with that, except this program, but... Uh, uh, <laughs> But uh, on a serious note, there's, uh, pro productivity is, in fact, going down. Output per worker is going down. Uh, it's not clear that all this – I use it. I have my smartphone and my laptop, and uh, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, I use all of the above. But um, uh, it's not clear how much of that's being put to productive use versus unproductive use, time-wasting, uh, various forms of entertainment, et cetera, number one. Uh, number two, even to the extent that it does add to productivity at the margin – it's deflationary. Oh, sure. How are you going to pay off the debt? If deflation increases the real value of the debt, if we have a debt crisis to begin with, if uh, debt-to-GDP ratios are at all-time high, if we're going bankrupt slowly, how does increasing the real value of the debt help? It doesn't. It makes the debt even more unpayable. So you're, you're bringing forward the day of reckoning with the, with the debt crisis. So I'm all for technology. I use it, but I wouldn't overstate uh, the ability of that to help avoid the financial collapse we're discussing. How do we protect ourselves going through all of this? Well, there are two things we could do, one at the sort of macro public policy level and one at the individual level. The, the, the policy is straightforward. Uh, again, my uh, metaphor uh, of the, the avalanche and the snowflake, uh, because it's not just a metaphor, Dominic. The dynamics and mathematics of how uh, an avalanche collapses are exactly the same as how nuclear reactors melt down, how tsunamis are formed, how earthquakes happen, and how financial markets collapse. They're all the same uh, at, at a fundamental level. So um, when, you, when you think about that happening, uh, what does the ski patrol in Switzerland or Colorado do first thing in the morning when there's avalanche danger? They go out and they throw dynamite, they fire off cannons to break up the snowpack. In other words, they're descaling a complex system. Bring that over to capital markets. We need to descale the system. That means uh, separating investment banking and commercial banking. So, in the U.S., reinstating uh, the old Glass-Steagall law. In the U.K., going back to the pre-Big Bang structure when investment and commercial banking were separate, as they were in the U.S. So that's step number one. Number two, ban almost all derivatives. I think uh, sort of old school Chicago-style exchange-traded futures that are heavily margined with. Uh, you know, real or solid underlying instruments used for commercial hedging, that seems fine. But these, you know, unlimited off-balance sheet, 
um, derivatives that the banks form themselves are nothing more than a device to steal money from customers and um, uh, you know basically enrich themselves at the expense of society it's just a form of gambling. Get rid of that completely. Third thing, break up the big banks. Uh, J.P. Morgan, for example, when I started in banking, was five banks, all of them big. It was there was the old J.P. Morgan, there was the Chase Manhattan Bank, something called the Chemical Bank, Manufacturers Hanover, and a bunch of others in there, uh, break them up into those parts. Now, this is exactly like a vessel with watertight compartments. You can punch a hole in a vessel, one compartment will fill with water, but the vessel will remain afloat. The whole thing doesn't fill up with water. So by breaking up the banks, one bank can fail, but the entire system does not sink. So th this is, so break up the banks, ban derivatives, separate commercial banking and investment banking. This is the equivalent of throwing dynamite in a dangerous snowpack, break it up so we don't kill the skiers. Okay, and at a personal level? Personal level, uh, by the way, everything I just said, I don't think is going to happen. I, I can outline it. I'm have, I don't like writing um, dire forecasts without having constructive solutions, so I just gave you the constructive yeah. solutions. Chance of those happening are close to zero because the bankers... It's too much vested interest. Correct. Uh, so if we can't save the world, what can we do to save ourselves? Um, I recommend 10% of your investable assets in gold or silver. Uh, not more. People say, well, gee, Jim, why not go all in? It's never prudent. I think 10% is plenty of insurance. Uh, get physical. Don't get paper gold because those contracts will be dishonored when the crisis comes. Uh, don't store it in the banks because there's a high conditional correlation between when you really want your gold and when the banks are closed. Uh, so put it in safe non-bank storage. Uh, that'll preserve your wealth. And uh, actually, silver will be become legal tender de facto when uh, the confidence in other forms of money is lost. Uh, fine art, uh, land, or good assets. I actually recommend a large allocation to cash, maybe as much as 30%. People are surprised to hear me say that. They say, cash in the bank or uh, cash at home? Well, uh, some of both. Uh, I live in an a, a area that's prone to hurricanes. We, we keep batteries and flashlights and water around for emergencies. I think some good cash. Not too much, but, you know, uh, it's harder to get than you think, by the way. You'll be treated like a drug dealer or a terrorist sure. when, you, when you go to get your Why cash. would you want lots of cash if we're going to have massive inflation? I would not want it uh, for long, but I like it in the short run because it has large embedded optionality. Uh, first of all, it reduces the volatility of the overall portfolio, but also as we get better visibility, I can make a strong case for inflation. We have in this interview. I can make a very strong case for deflation. I think the world is on the knife edge between the two. And so cash gives you the ability to pivot when we get a little more visibility. This is not a set it and forget a portfolio. It's just to give you some optionality in the short run. Mm -hmm. the, the time may come when you want to buy government bonds to hedge deflation, or you may want to buy more gold to hedge inflation, but cash is good in the meantime. Where do you live? Uh, I live in... You don't uh, have to uh, give me your address. Well, no, I live in uh, in Connecticut. Uh, okay. And so we, are, we, are, we do get hurricanes every now and then. And sure. We like to be prepared. Um... I think we've got your portfolio. Did I? We haven't missed anything. We, we well, I actually, I, uh, I do then. not own any stocks in any public companies, but I do invest in startups and uh, technology companies. So, yeah, I'm invested in one predictive analytics company. I'm invested in one uh, water technology company. These are very small companies, but I like those kind of investments. Uh, uh, I, I know the people involved. Uh, I, have a, I have a paper contract. It's not a digital contract, and uh, I can go see them whenever I like. Mining. Uh, gold mining has a place. Uh, gold is uh, gold mining stocks are a leverage bet on gold. They do worse when gold goes down, and they do better when gold goes up. Uh, so for a slice, yes, I think they absolutely have a place in a portfolio. Uh, you know, other forms of natural resources, oil, also oil, water, 
um, you know, etc. Great stuff. Well, Jim, the book is called The Road to Ruin, The Global Elite Secret Plan for the Next Financial Crisis. And it is published by Penguin uh, Portfolio. And it is available now. Jim, if people want to find out more about you or what you do or sign up for your newsletter or any of those kind of things, do you want to give yourself a plug? Sure. Uh, or thank your you. Twitter I, handle, maybe? Uh, I have a website, uh, jamesrecordsproject.com, all uh, one word, jamesrecordsproject.com. You'll find information about the books and my newsletter and my background and other things there. I have a very active Twitter feed at James G. Rickards. I use my middle initial. Rickards is R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S. At James G. Rickards, I put out a steady stream of comment on the international monetary system and things we've been discussing, Dominic. Thank you. Great stuff. Jim Rickards, thank you very much. Frisbee's Bulls and Bears is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our forum at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com. To join our mailing list so you can be updated as soon as a new show is posted, please email info at dominicfrisbee.net or simply subscribe through iTunes. 